The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Amen. And welcome uh, from our living room to yours. This is a new experience for all of us. Um, And we talk a lot around here about what it means to be the church and how a church isn't a building. Um, And so when we leave this place, we don't stop being the church. And we've talked in here before about how the early church met from house to house and how they would gather together in small groups to break bread, to pray, to study the apostles' doctrine, to open up the Bible and to fellowship with one another. And so we're getting to live that out in the most amazing, practical, real way right now. And since we can't be with you in your living room, this was the next best thing. And like Sean was saying, thanks to technology, we can still gather together. And so we're thankful to God for that. Um, If you do have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to the Gospel of John. That's where we're going to be starting, although we will be hopscotching our way around the scriptures a little bit in our study this evening. Um, But Soon after everything broke loose and this coronavirus became a global pandemic, I felt God impressing this message on my heart. And it's it's a message that um, in in pieces you've heard shared in this room before, in this church before, but it's, it's delivered through the lens of what God has been sharing with me. So the title of the message that I'll be working from this evening is Unshakable Faith. And I don't know about you, but that's definitely something I'm looking for, something I'm craving and something I need. I think we all need something that is firm and steady, unshakable. We need a faith that can't be rocked even when the world around us is shaking like crazy. So that's what I wanna talk to you about this evening. Um, And to set things up, I I was trying to think through some of the events that have happened in our world that really grabbed the attention of the entire global population. And it's a pretty short list um, of things that captivate the entire world's attention. On the positive side, I thought about the Olympics and how during the summer and winter Olympics, every four years, the whole world kind of gathers together to celebrate sport and unity and we come together in that way. And then um, I I thought of World War II where the whole world was stopped in its tracks by what happened in World War II. And then now I'm thinking we can add the coronavirus to that list. Um, It it just seems like every aspect of daily life has been impacted and affected by the coronavirus. It's inescapable, it's unavoidable. It, it lingers on the outer edges of every conversation we seem to be having these days. It's all we hear about on TV. It's all we read about in the news. The coronavirus is everywhere. It's all encompassing. In fact, it's, it's hard for me to even think of something that has happened in my life that has captivated the world's attention or gripped the world with as much fear as this event has. Just listen to the smattering of headlines I plucked from various newspapers. Coronavirus unknowns put US in unprecedented situation. Coronavirus threatens to pose an unprecedented challenge to the 2020 elections. 
Stock markets halted for unprecedented third time due to coronavirus scare. President Donald J. Trump has taken unprecedented steps to respond to the coronavirus and protect the health and safety of Americans. Roman Catholic churches ordered closed due to coronavirus, unprecedented in modern times. I think you get the idea. We're in uncharted territory here. And that's something that's true, not just on a global level or even on a national scale, but I think it's something that's also true on an organizational scale for, for this church. We, we're almost kind of sailing into uncharted waters here. I mean, we're a church, for goodness sake. We gather people together. It's kind of who we are. It's, it's in our DNA. It's, it's what we're all about. But now we're unable to do that and so we're forced to pivot and we're forced to adjust. But thankfully, while it may be a little unnerving and unsettling and feel like we're sailing into uncharted seas, we're not without map or compass. You see, as we go back in history, we can glean lessons from the early church who had to endure century after century of global pandemics and plagues and all sorts of things. And, and by looking at how they steered and navigated those experiences, we can, we can learn valuable lessons from them. For example, in AD 249, the Roman Empire experienced one of its worst pandemics in its history. It's estimated by um, historians that within a short amount of time, up to a quarter of the Roman population died as a result of these plagues. And what's interesting to look at is to see the response of how both the Christian community and the non-Christian community responded to the plagues. At the first onset of this plague that hit, this pandemic in 249 AD, most Roman citizens with any means fled for the hills and they abandoned uh, the elderly and they fled from the infirmed and they left widows and orphans to fend for themselves. And, and it was just a mass exodus of people from the Roman capital. But standing in stark contrast to that, we find the response of the early Christians and rather than panicking and fleeing, the first century church stayed and they cared for the elderly. They brought in the orphans, they took care of the widows and they gave comfort and care to the sick and to the infirmed. And as a result of that, the church flourished. It grew by leaps and bounds during that time. In fact, the impact of their, um, their faith was so stark that a century later, the pagan emperor Julian complained about how during the plagues, the Galileans, that's what they called Christians back then, cared for even non-Christian sick people. And in the end, it was this empathy and compassionate love that gave the early church a platform from which they could then share their message of hope and love, and it drew many to them, and many became believers in Jesus as a result. In fact, according to many Christian and non-Christian historians, one of the main catalysts for the massive growth that the early church experienced, it can all be tied to the way that they navigated disease and suffering. I guess here's what I'm trying to communicate through this. While we would all agree that 
These aren't ideal circumstances. And the coronavirus is nasty, it's ugly, it's horrible, it's terrible. But while all of those things are true, I think we also need to recognize the possibility and the opportunity here for the church to stand up and to stand out and to shine. They talk about how the stars seem to shine the brightest on the darkest nights. Well, it's dark outside. Metaphorically speaking, it's dark out there. So it's time for the church to shine. We have an opportunity here. Instead of panicking like the world around us is doing, we can turn to prayer. Instead of worrying, we can turn to God in worship. Instead of shrinking back in fear, we can press on in faith. Here's the thing that we need to remember. Jesus never promised us a life free from problems. In fact, he promised us the exact opposite, didn't he? He promised us that in this world, you will have tribulation. John 16, 33. Let's go ahead and read that together. I have, and I'm going to read this, but I want you at home with your Bibles open, go ahead and read it with me. I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus says, I'm about to share something with you because I want it to bring peace to your heart. And then he follows that up by saying, you're going to have trouble in this life. In other words, expect problems. But beyond that, Jesus goes on to tell us something else, doesn't he? He says, but you can take heart or literally have courage. Why? Because I have overcome the world. So three things Jesus tell us, tells us. There's going to be trouble in this world. I've overcome the world. And since you're with me and we're on the same team, you can have courage even in, in the midst of fear. Praise the Lord for that. Here's how one person put it. And I love this quote. God never promised a life without pain, laughter without tears or sun without rain. But he did promise strength for the day, comfort for the tears and light for the way. Those are important things to remember in a time like this. We haven't been promised a life free from problems, but we have been assured of God's abiding presence. He's still with us. He's still good. He's still on the throne. And we know that ultimately God will use all things, yes, all things for our good and his glory. And that includes even something as terrible as the coronavirus. But I can hear you and sense you even through the screen of your television monitors doubting the truth of that. Perhaps you're wondering what silver linings could you possibly pull out of something as terrible as a global pandemic? I have a few thoughts and I'd like to work through those with each of us. First, I believe God is using the current situation to shake things up. Listen to this verse from Hebrews 12, 27. It says, when God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, God says, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. 
This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only, listen, so that only, pay attention, so that only unshakable things will remain. God is going to shake the whole earth, he says, so that only that which is unshakable will remain. Now we're broadcasting here from Southern California. I grew up in San Diego and, and, and part of what growing up in Southern California means is we get used to having earthquakes and earthquakes are just part of the deal when you grow up in this part of the country and this part of the world. And every few years, it seems like there will be an earthquake. In fact, there was just an earthquake the other day in Utah. But every few years, there will be an earthquake in, in San Diego that we feel. And then every so often, once every decade or so, there'll be one that really shakes things up. And it's, it's a completely unnerving experience for those of you who didn't grow up here, or maybe um, you're watching this from some other part of the country. When a big earthquake hits, it doesn't just shake things. You literally feel the earth beneath you kind of roll like a sea. And it's almost like you're on a boat out at sea. It's the craziest thing. And it's unnerving, as I mentioned, because there's, there's nothing you can do to escape it. There's nowhere you can run to hide from it. And there's nothing that you can hold on to that will um, keep it from getting to you. It's inescapable. And I think that's kind of unique with earthquakes as it pertains to natural disasters, right? When a hurricane hits, you can board up your house. When a tornado hits, you can take shelter in your basement if you have one. When a tsunami is coming, you can head for high ground. But when an earthquake hits and, and literally the earth beneath your feet begins to shake, there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide unless you happen to have the good fortune of being in an airplane. And as I was thinking about that picture, I can see in that an analogy for what's happening in our world right now. It feels like the earth itself is being shaken. Just think about things. All of our usual forms of entertainment are gone. Schools are closed, restaurants closed. And then just think about what's happening in the financial markets and what's happening on Wall Street. I mean, watching the Dow Jones, it feels like watching a roller coaster ride. And I read recently that we just had our worst week on the Dow Jones since 1987. In other words, the entire economy of the US, but not just the US, the entire global economy is shaking violently. And the result of this is it has a lot of us feeling shook. If you're feeling that way, just look to the person next to you and say, I'm feeling shook. Can we just do that? In the midst of all of the shaking, I think we're looking for something, something that is firm, immovable, steady, and transfixed. If only we knew where to turn. Well, praise God as the church we do. We have Jesus Christ. And when we turn to him, we find that we have firm footing. Somebody through the TV, let me feel you say amen. Just listen to this promise from the book of Hebrews. Therefore, and let's read this together, those of you who are watching. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. 
Did you hear what that verse is telling us? We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaking, shaken. Even when the whole world around us is shaking, if you are a child of God this evening, then I'm here to tell you that you belong to a kingdom that is immovable. It cannot be shaken. And that gives me tremendous hope. That builds an unshakable kind of faith in me. I'm reminded of this old hymn. We used to sing it growing up in church. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. Maybe you remember that. I'm just going to sing a bar of it here for you. You can sing along in your home. But it goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but holy trust on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen. Praise Jesus. On Christ the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's what builds unshakable faith. The Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, speaking on this subject of being immovable, transfixed, unshakable, he said that that's not just something that belongs to the kingdom, it's something that we, as the inheritors of the kingdom, as the inhabitants of the kingdom of God, we too can experience. Listen, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I love the picture that that verse paints, that we have a faith that can cause us to be steadfast, grounded, unmovable. And then beyond that, we're abounding in the work of the Lord. For me, it conjures in my mind the picture of an oak tree. Oak trees, I'm told, a mature oak can grow to be more than 80 feet tall. And the crown or the breadth of its branches can stretch just as wide. So picture a tree that's 80 feet tall and 80 feet wide. Its lifespan can, can, its life can span hundreds of years. And what's the key? or secret to the longevity of the oak, it lies, of course, in its root system, which is not only deep, but also wide. The roots of an oak tree, they burrow down four feet into the earth, and then they spread out 90 feet in diameter. That's what gives it its support and strength so that it can withstand whatever storms may come its way. Now let's compare that picture, the picture of the oak tree that we're all thinking of with a tumbleweed. If you've ever been to a desert, you've no doubt seen tumbleweeds being blown across the sand by the wind. And the problem with tumbleweeds, of course, is their lack of roots. Unlike the oak tree, the tumbleweeds have essentially no root structure. And so whenever the heat gets turned up or whenever a drought of any kind hits, the tumbleweed shrivels up and dies almost instantly. And of course, I think you can see where I'm going with this analogy. 
Far too many of us have developed a tumbleweed type mentality when it comes to our faith and our relationship with God. We may open our Bible from time to time and read a verse or two, but, but Jesus and our faith, they're not really central in our lives. Jesus, if anything, he's played more of a, a peripheral role, but he's not central. And, and consequently, we're shook. So as the world around us is shaking and as all of the things that we used to turn to for comfort are no longer there, it, it leaves us dried up. Could it be that our root systems are too shallow? Maybe I just described you. If so, here's a word from the Lord. It's time to repent and it's time to turn to Jesus and allow the roots of your soul to go down deep into the bedrock and the soil of his word. That's how we dig deep roots, by turning to the word of God. For when we turn to the word, it's there in his word that we're reminded of his promises to us, of which I'll remind you that there are more than 30,000 of them. And beyond that, we know that every one of those promises is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So when we open the word, we're reminded of God's promises. But beyond that, when we dig into God's word, we're reminded of the power that has been made available to us. And let me just tell you something. That power that's been made available to us, it's the same power that was at work in Jesus when God raised him from the dead. He has all power, the Bible says, all authority. It's been given to him. And guess what? We're with him. So if you align yourself with him, then it really doesn't matter what or who comes against you. It won't be able to stand. Thirdly, when we read the Bible, it points us to hundreds of prophecies that assure us of our ultimate victory. So we open up the word and our roots go down and we find promises that we can stand on. We find power that we can tap into. And thirdly, we find prophecies that remind us that in the end, we win. Now, now I get it. I know that there are some of you out there that perhaps you're thinking, I just, I can't wrap my head around the prophecy thing and it never makes sense to me and I'm just not really into prophecy. And my response to that would be, you need to be into prophecy. And here's why. Prophetic things are happening all around us, for one. But for another reason, one out of every four verses in the Bible is prophetic in nature. So if you're going to be a Bible person, then by default, you're going to be a prophecy person. And I've read the end of the book, so I know how this thing plays out. And, and here's what it all comes down to. If I could just summarize it for us here in two words. Here it is. God wins. And that's the picture that gets painted and that instills confidence in our souls and our roots go deep into God's word. But they don't just go deep, they go wide too. And this is the picture of us connecting, interconnecting our lives with one another. And this is where we practice all of the one another verses of the Bible. This is where we serve our brothers and sisters and those in need. And as we do that, our roots go down, our roots go out, and we become like that oak tree that's able to weather the storms. It's an unshakable kind of faith. But there's something else that I think God is doing through the current situation that I'd like to talk about with you. 
Not only is he shaking things up, number one. Number two, I believe God is using the current situation to wake his people up. Listen to this verse. This is from Paul's letter to the Romans. He said, and do this, understanding the present time. You catch that? We need to be understanding of the times in which we're living. He says this, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So Paul is sounding the spiritual alarm clock here. And who's he sharing this alarm message with? Notice, he, he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to people whose salvation is nearer now than when they first believed. So this wake-up call, it's not just for those on the outside of the church. No, no, no. Here Paul tells us, and he makes it plain, that this is a message for God's people. Far too many Christians have fallen into a state of apathy and lethargy. We have become so comfortable with the way things are and the status quo that we're just kind of sleepwalking our way through life. We've allowed the cancer of compromise to creep in and wrap its tentacles and hooks around our souls. And God is telling us through this situation, you can't mess around anymore. The alarm has been sounded and it's time for the church to wake up. The hour is late. I think of the way in ancient times, one of the things that they would do for security measures is they would station watchmen along various points of the walls in places like Jerusalem that had a city wall. And, and the Hebrew word for watchman is safa, which literally means to lean forward, get this, to peer into the distance and to wait for. So this was the job of the watchman. It was really quite simple, wasn't it? They were to stand at their post. You couldn't abandon your post. And secondly, you were to watch. What were they watching for? Well, anything, anything and everything. They looked for messengers with news from distant lands and couriers and approaching armies and impending danger. And if they saw anything unusual or out of the ordinary or anything that caught the eye, they would take a trumpet that was affixed to their side and they would raise it to their lips and they would let out three short staccato blasts of sound. And this would alert the superior, superior officers who would then, you know, rush to that part of the wall where the, the alarm was sounded. And from there, um, they could take the appropriate measures. Of course, the hardest part for the watchman was the monotony of the long nights that they inevitably had to endure. As their eyelids would grow heavy and at times they would succumb to sleep. Of course, this was the worst thing that you could do as a watchman. If a watchman were to fall asleep at their post, it could put an entire city at risk. And that's why as Christians who have been stationed as watchmen on the wall, it's time for us to wake up it's time for us to sound the alarm to a world that is looking for something that is real, something that has handles, something that can carry them through the storms that life brings. And this, I believe, is one of those wake-up calls. We need to heed the words of Jesus, who on the night of his betrayal and ultimate trial and crucifixion, there in the garden, 
turned to his disciples and he said, watch and pray with me lest you enter into temptation. Of course, in that instance, each time that Jesus returned to them, having spent time alone with his father in prayer, he found them asleep, asleep at their post. What about us? What about you? Have you fallen asleep at your post? If so, it's time to wake up. You can't hit the snooze button any longer. The Lord is speaking to his church. He's shaking things up. He's waking us up. In fact, just the other night, I had a dream. And in this dream, I was on the Sea of Galilee and I was in this wooden boat, much like you would imagine Jesus and his disciples would have been in. And there with me were the disciples. And I remember the sky because the sky was beautiful hues of oranges and yellows and reds and the water was, was calm and pristine and glassy smooth. And then in my dream, I saw Jesus standing on the water. And since I'm a Bible guy and I know the story, I yelled out, Peter, he's calling you. This is your move. It's time to go out, walk on the water. And Peter looked over at me and then I looked out and saw Jesus and he was beckoning to come. But then in the next moment, it wasn't Peter, it was me that was stepping over to the side of the boat and getting ready and beginning to take my first steps onto the water where Jesus was. It was a really cool dream. But then the following morning as I was putting the pieces of the puzzle together, it struck me that in my dream, the sky was beautiful like a sunrise or a sunset and it was oranges and yellows. And, and in the Bible story, I, I know that there was a storm and so the sky would have been black. And in my dream, the water was placid and calm, but in the story, there were large waves that Peter looked down at and that's what caused him to fear and take his eyes off of the Lord. And, and I believe the Lord was telling me through this dream that this is a wake up call, that this isn't the storm maybe, but this is certainly practice and preparation. Hello, our word for the year as a church is prepare. And we are preparing now, learning how to walk on water, learning how to rise above the circumstances that, that freak everyone else out, learning how to, to walk above the waves by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We're doing it now when things haven't gotten too crazy yet so that when that time comes, we'll be prepared and we'll be ready. We need to do it. Now, we need to wake up now because our salvation is nearer than it's ever been before. Which leads me to the third and final point of this message. We've talked about how God is using this situation to shake things up and wake people up. But thirdly, I think he wants to use this situation to get us to look up, to look up to the heavens. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered his disciples and part of what he said to him was this, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions and if it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. If it were not so, or if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and take you to be with me so that you might be where I am. If it were not so, I would have told you. Then when Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives, the Bible tells us that two men appeared and stood by the disciples as they looked up and they said, why do you stand staring up into heaven? This 
same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go in to heaven. In other words, Jesus said, I'm coming back and he's coming back the same way he left. He's coming back visibly and he's coming back physically. This is a theme that reverberates like a drum throughout the entirety of the New Testament. We talk about the imminent return of Christ, that Jesus could come back at any moment. In fact, the last recorded words of Jesus in the Bible are found in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, where Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. So this is the promise that the church has held on to for the last 2,000 years. But perhaps that's part of the problem. You see, there are a lot of people out there who say, well, yeah, he said that. And there have been a lot of generations that have come and gone since then. And each one of them has seemed to say the same thing, that Jesus is coming soon. But they're starting to sound like a broken record and he hasn't come back yet. And the world is full of scoffers who doubt the return of Christ. And to them, the whole concept seems absurd. Now, it might surprise you to learn that people were saying that as far back as the first century. This isn't a new argument. This isn't a new thing. But it's even something that the apostle Peter had to deal with in the first century. And so rather than give you my response to this line of reasoning and thinking, saying since he hasn't come, he must not be coming, I'll let Peter answer you. And here's what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.9. He said, the Lord isn't slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but rather he's long suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So there you have it. It's not that God has forgotten his promise to come back and get us. It's just that he's long suffering and that he wants as many people as possible to get saved. So that raises another question. Well, when will he come back? And how much longer do we have to wait? And the answer is we, we can't know that for sure. Jesus said this, he said, no man knows the day nor the hour. So we're to live in an ever vigilant state of readiness. But Jesus also said something else. He said, while no man may know the day or the hour, he said, you shouldn't be caught unaware. He said, we can discern the, the seasons by the signs in the sky. And so too, if you can discern the times and the seasons, then so too, you should be looking at the newspaper and that should give you clues concerning how close my return is. So how close are we? Well, we know that in the last days, things of a global nature that impact things globally and shake things up globally are going to happen with a greater intensity and fervency and frequency, kind of like a pregnancy. And as the contractions get closer and closer, even so, you know, the baby is on the way. And we've had a series of contractions that, man, they're getting to the point where it feels like it's almost every three minutes now. It's every two minutes. And I think we can say with a certain degree of certainty that we are in full-blown contraction mode. So how do we respond? If God's shaking us up, if he's waking us up, if he's calling us to look up, then, then what do we do as a church? Again, I'd, I'd go back to what the early church did. We can take our cues from them. 
we found that they flourished during waves of pandemics and plagues because why? They leaned in and they depended on one another. They allowed their roots to spread out wide and to go deep, knowing that the world around them was watching. God is up to something. He's shaking things up. He's waking his people up. And the time is now to start looking up for our salvation draws nigh. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.